Hello, my name is Artemis Fotiado, and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In this episode, I am talking to Dr. Tanya Hama about her recent biography of Beatriz Allende, a pediatrician, revolutionary, and daughter of Salvador Allende, Chile's socialist president in the early 1970s. We discuss her political activity, her years in exile in Cuba, and then her suicide at the age of 35. I start by asking Tania about the political situation in Chile during the 60s and the 70s, the years when Beatrice was politically active. These are really exciting years in Chile. These are years of political change and revolutionary change. So many more sectors of the public are involved in politics and there are a number of things that happen in the long 1960s, which are really the years where she's politically active, that are significant. So there's the agrarian reform movement that happens in Chile. And there's also a university reform movement, which involves students. Um, we have, you know, there's occupations of universities. There's big questions about how universities are going to be run in this period. But politically, there are a, significant, a number of significant markers that happen during these years. There's the election of a Christian Democrat president in Chile in 1964, Eduardo Frey. He aims to bring forth what he calls a revolution in liberty. And this is a really big, profound changes of the way in which uh, Chilean politics occurs um, that involve things like the agrarian reform movement. This is a moment where Chile's democratic space is expanding, where more and more people are joining in uh, politics. And really also uh, the youth, Chilean youth play a very, very big part in, in, in this. Then, of course, in 1970, um, Beatrice's father, Salvador Allende, is elected president of Chile um, as the head of a left-wing coalition that aims to bring about a peaceful democratic road to socialism. And this is this is an incredible moment in Chile's uh, political past that ends very, very, very abruptly, very violently in 1973 with the coup that brought Pinochet to, to power in uh, on the 11th of September 1973. In what way was she involved in these developments? And would you say that she was um, a key figure in Chilean politics? I wouldn't say that Beatriz was a key figure in the 1960s and um, for much of the 1960s she's a medical student and she's very busy on her rotations on her internships on on learning uh, the ropes of being a pediatrician and specializing in public health she's active in politics she's part of the the university socialist brigade it's called um, and so she's involved in student politics she goes out to the countryside and participates in some of the big debates and some of the mobilizations about around agrarian reform. But she does become a very key figure when it comes to her father's presidential administration in the early 1970s. So she she leaves medicine very quickly after he's elected and she goes to work for him as his private secretary, which sounds relatively kind of minor role, but actually was a quite a key position within his presidential administration, forging a bridge between different sectors of the left, but also um, serving as a, a key interlocutor with the Cuban revolutionary government at the time. So she, she, she becomes increasingly central to the way in which Chilean politics is, opera, is, is, is occurring. And then after the coup, she flees into exile or she, she, she has to go into exile and she goes to Cuba. And from Cuba, she is a key figure in the growing solidarity movement with Chile that, that mushrooms really after 1973. You said that she had a fairly insignificant sounding role as her father's private secretary, 
but that it was actually an important one. How significant was that role? I think it was very, very significant, actually. I mean, people talk about their relationship, or or many of those I interviewed um, referred to their relationship as incredibly close. Um, She is regarded very much as being his confidant, but also someone who could really kind of talk very honestly to him and would debate with him. And they had different different views and different opinions, um, but it was a a relationship of trust and of loyalty. And one of the things that Beatrice tries to do is, is to make sure that she protects her father from arguments, particularly on the left, and the factional infighting that increasingly takes place. Um, but she also tries to push him. She tries to push him to be, I guess, bolder um, when it comes to confronting the opposition. She did not feel as wedded to the process of conciliation and debate and 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 discussion that her father did and and she believed that really he had to kind of confront the opposition and the united states um more forcefully both from what you were just saying but also from reading the book it sounds like she had more influence on the president than the role of private secretary uh, allows us to assume. So do you think that she was undermined in that position because of her gender? Or is it just uh, a question of how we understand uh, these secretarial positions? Yeah, it's a strange one. I mean, his secretary prior to his presidency was was a man. And so I guess it's perhaps it's our conception of what a secretary involves. I, I do think that we need to rethink these roles and particularly these very central you know, secretarial roles that that occurred around key figures in in the past. And we tend to write them out of history, but they are very, very important in terms of logistics, in terms of access to the president, in terms of the way in which he communicates with others. In terms of her being a woman, though, and going back to your question, I mean, I I think what's, what's interesting to me is that she she plays a rather offstage role. And many of the women in in this story play an an offstage role. They're not named participants, but they're always there at these meetings. And in memoirs of the period or in, um, you know, in informal histories of the period, she's not given a formal title at meetings as a, as a member of an advisory group, for example, but she's the one who sets up the advisory group. She's the one who coordinates the advisory group. And she participates in some of the conversations that that advisory group has. So I do see this being a, a gendered issue. And in a time when leaders and political figures tended to be men and women tended to be present but not named participants. I mean, much of what she was doing, as you say, was behind the scenes, important as it was. So how well known was she, both in terms of the more the political, the elite level, but also how well known was she to the public? I don't think she was particularly well known. She was was very well known on the left. Um, She'd grown up with many of the figures who were in government, um, you know, she, as, as the daughter of Salvador Allende, who had been a senator, a congressman, a presidential candidate four times, people knew who she was as Salvador Allende's daughter. And she was very much respected on the left as well as someone who was deemed as being kind of a very key figure in revolutionary politics but she kept quite a low profile she wasn't someone who went and and spoke in in a very public role she she steps in for her father during the election when he he actually suffers a very minor heart attack at the beginning of his presidential campaign in 1970 and she steps in and speaks to a rally but other than that she she doesn't have a very um public role so she's known but not 
widely. She's not a big kind of uh, national figure in any in any way. After the coup, after 1973, she assumes a much wider uh, position and role uh, within the Chilean left. And partly this is because many see her as the heir apparent to her father. And also because when solid, big solidarity events were held, she was seen as someone who could receive that solidarity kind of on behalf of her, of the family, on behalf of the Allende family, a, a role that she and her mother play very well. Although again here, she, she takes a step backwards and lets her mother actually kind of take the limelight much more. You've already hinted at the fact that she had some ideological differences with her father. What were her ideological beliefs? I think this is a very good question. And I think it's one that I still, I still can't pinpoint precisely. And it's one of the frustrations maybe with writing a biography where you don't have, of someone who doesn't have a, a, a kind of extensive personal archive. Beatrice was one of a, a figure or a member of the revolutionary left, um, a group of uh, young Chileans who came of age at the time of the Cuban revolution. And this revolutionary left really believes in action over theory, or a lot of a great, uh, a great many of them do. She was not someone who wrote down in great detail her ideological beliefs. But, you know, having said that, it's very clear she was a revolutionary socialist. She believed in the redistribution of wealth and power as an answer to widespread poverty and inequality. She was an anti-imperialist. She was an internationalist to a large extent. She was influenced by the twin influence of her father, on the one hand, um, who had committed his whole life and who had dedicated his whole, his whole life to democracy and to kind of the Socialist Party and, and to his belief that in Chile, revolutionary change could happen by the ballot box. And on the other hand, to the Cuban Revolution, to the example that the Cuban Revolution offered. Now, unlike her father, she does not have as much faith that Chile's constitutional democracy will allow for revolutionary, significant revolutionary change to happen. And this is the, the big difference I think she sees with her father. She is much more wary of the opposition and the potential for violent reaction and violent opposition to the idea of revolutionary change. Like the Cuban revolutionaries and the Cuban revolutionary government, she ultimately believed that force would have to be used at least to defend the revolutionary process. But during her father's administration, she is 100% wedded to defending him as president. And she believes that he is one of the only figures that can unite the left. And so I've got some of her letters, access to some of her letters. And I think it's interesting to see how her position changes during the election campaign. At the beginning, she's saying she doesn't have any faith in, you know, the possibility of democratic kind of peaceful transition to socialist government um, or socialist change. Then after her father wins, she, she turns around and she says, he was right, uh, you know, I respect him more and more. You know, she, she worries constantly that he is going to be attacked and that, or he's, that the opposition is gonna block him. But she says, you know, I underestimated the chances and the possibilities that the Unidad Popular, this, the, the, the coalition and the project that Allende leads, I undermined the possibilities that they, that could have to usher forth change. Um, significant change in Chile. So yes, I mean, it, to come back to the question, it, it's hard to pinpoint precisely um, and accurately exactly what her ideological beliefs are. But it's it's very clear she shares many of the end goals that her father has, but she just differs when it comes to believing that in, in how, how this is going to be possible. 
on the on the topic of Cuba that you just mentioned, in the book again you say that uh, she was her father's parallel and official foreign minister when he came to Cuba. So what exactly was her relationship with uh, with Cuba and Cuban leaders at the time? Yes, um, so this is a relationship that has been building for many years before uh, she becomes private secretary to her father. Beatrice first went to Cuba in 1960 as a young student where she was I think lucky enough, I think is the word to say, because she hadn't planned to, but she wanted to arrive just in time for the first Congress of Latin American Youth that was held in July 1960. And, and she manages to get there, hitching rides, you know, across diff to different countries in Latin America, first to Argentina, then Brazil, then Uruguay, then Venezuela. And she finally gets to Cuba just in time for this Congress, which had been built up and talked about um, a lot in the in the months prior. She's fascinated and she's absolutely inspired by what she sees on the island. These are the first initial months of the revolution. Uh, she's able to go and she meets Che Guevara briefly. She uh, listens to Fidel uh, talking about expropriation of US companies. So this was her first contact with the Cuban revolution. Um, in 1967, she returns with her father in, on a visit to the island and it's actually just in the aftermath of Che Guevara's death in Bolivia and at the moment where guerrilla insurgency the, is, is actually kind of declining, but in many ways is, is, is attracting more and more followers and more and more support. And she asked the Cuban leaders, and when I say the Cuban leaders, she was able to meet Fidel and Manuel Piñero, who was head of the kind of Latin American revolutionary operations. She asked them for training and she asked them if she could partake in further internationalist guerrilla insurgencies in Latin America. And they said, no, they say no on account of who her father is and the possibility that that would undermine his role, which was currently then at president of the Senate in, in Chile. But they also say no on account of her gender. It's not very normal for women to go and kind of receive guerrilla insurgency training. But she becomes very uh, she becomes very closely linked to an effort to restart uh, what Che has started in Bolivia, which was a, you know, a revolutionary um, insurgent operation. The Ejército de Liberación Nacional, the revolutionary, uh, National Revolutionary Army. And she is part of a Chilean group that provides a lot of logistical support, a lot of actual revolutionary insurgents to go to Bolivia after this in the late 1960s. She spends a lot of time on the island coordinating this new revolutionary insurgency. And although she doesn't receive training in the way that she had kind of envisaged, she does receive intelligence trainings, communication training. She receives training in radio signaling, and she becomes a key figure in communicating with those involved in the Cuban revolutionary operations in Latin America. This is all happening independent of her father and his political campaign. He doesn't know that all of this is happening at the same time. She also, during this period, falls in love with and begins a relationship with a Cuban intelligence official, Luis Fernandez Oña, and they maintain this kind of secret kind of love affair between Chile and Cuba in the late 1960s. So when her father is elected, and her father knew she'd been back and forth to Cuba. She just, he didn't know exactly what she was doing there. She had very close ties, not only to Cuba, she was very comfortable in Cuba, but also to kind of key figures within the Cuban revolutionary state who were involved in organizing and 
coordinating relationships with Latin America. It was a, it was a very intimate, it was a very complex, it was very uh, significant relationship she had with Cuba is, is, is the answer to the question. You mentioned um, at the beginning that her significance changes after her father's death. So I wanted first to talk a bit more about how does she react to the coup? Uh, and then how does she react to the death on a more personal level? I mean, the coup is catastrophic. It's catastrophic for Beatriz personally. It's catastrophic for the world that she has participated in. It's for everything that she's fought for. Her whole life is attacked and destroyed by the military dictatorship that comes into power. And that's not, they don't just target the revolutionary left and those who supported Cuba, but they target the whole basis of democratic democracy and the and the democratic space as well. So it's it's catastrophic. The way that Beatrice reacts, and she's not only reacting to the destruction of the world her world, but also to the death of her father, who was the person she loved most in the world. And the way she reacts is is by fighting back, or the way she feels she has to react. In her letters, she says, we must must not lose a minute of our time. We must dedicate every second of our energy and time and all our energies to resisting the dictatorship, to fighting back. So she pours all her energies into um, this committee that she forms in, in Havana, whose job it is to publicize um, news about what's happening in Chile, to raise funds and to try and get the funds back to Chile, to underground um, members of political parties, underground of the members of the left, but also families of prisoners, families who are trying to seek out their loved ones, kind of the legal, um, the legal proceedings that were that were being launched to try and actually find out about what had happened to um, prisoners as well. So her role changes in that she she dedicates all her energies to this solidarity effort, and she also travels a lot. And um, she has to travel. Well, she 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 does travel to collect funds, to raise awareness, to do interviews, and all the time that this is happening, she's trying to juggle life as a mother to two young children and her role as a wife to her Cuban husband as well. And it's it's an impossible juggling act that, well, that really destroys in a way her, her ability to move, to move on or to find any kind of semblance of a new life in exile, as, insofar as new life uh, in exile is possible. This incredibly hard process for all exiles to, to, to adjust to life in exile and, and also life in a world where the Pinochet dictatorship is is consolidating its control over politics, society back home. And how does being in exile affect her? Can you say a bit more about what does it mean to her being in exile? I mean, it's very clear that Beatrice wants to go back to Chile. I mean, first and foremost, she wants to return. Um, and this is something towards the end of her life. She's She's increasingly asking the Cubans to help her achieve she wants to go back and fight for the resistance or to serve in the underground when it comes to those who are kind of resisting the dictatorship back in Chile. But the Cubans consistently say no, and they don't just say no to her, they also worry about helping many other Chileans as well. And one of the principal reasons for this is that the conditions and the situation in Chile was just so difficult the dictatorship was so powerful in its repression, repression and its repressive apparatus that sending people back to Chile was very likely to end with them getting killed or their or the underground efforts being um, uncovered. And 
the Cubans therefore do want to help, but they believe that the initial fight has to be in reorganization. It has to be on the international stage. It has to be in terms of building up kind of a broader coalition of resistance. And they very much want to support Beatrice in terms of her travels and in terms of her work with the committee. But also they don't want to send her back. A, you know, she's a woman. B, she's Allende's heir apparent. And they see this as a, this would be a big mistake because it would be in a sense, a kind of suicidal mission for such a key figure on the Chilean left or the, the kind of figure that they see in her, which is a potential leader of, of, in the future of the Chilean left. So she's she's very torn. She, she wants to go back. You asked about exile in other ways. I mean, Cuba for her is not on is not kind of an alien place for her. She has a Cuban husband. She has had lots of experience being in Cuba. And actually, for much of the 1960s, she longs to be in Cuba. She longs to be back there. She longs to be living a, a kind of revolutionary Cuban life. Exile is different because it's forced. Um, and it's also different because Cuba in the 1970s, in the mid to late 70s, is a very different place to Cuba in 1960, where she had first encountered it. It's uh, undergoing a process of institutionalization, of realignment with the Soviet Union, of hardships and of certain austerity. And she never, I mean, she never complains or criticizes the Cuban revolution. She is adamant that, you know, she needs to support and she is loyal to the end to the Cuban revolution. But when it comes to actually her committee work, she finds it very hard to secure the basic of kind of resources, whether it comes to ink or tape or batteries for you know for recording interviews so and also for communicating with the outside world is very very hard from cuba so the chilean exiles who were in cuba relied on people going abroad for various reasons to send letters back to chile so it's difficult it's difficult and how does she deal specifically with being seen as the heir apparent i think she takes on it on out of loyalty and out of commitment to her father and to the revolutionary left cause. It's not um, a role she would choose, but she she doesn't ask any questions about doing so. And I mean, there are incredible scenes of her standing um, on the 28th of September 1973 in front of thousands in, in, in Havana, eight and a half months pregnant and delivering a powerful speech about her father's last moments, but also about the left's need to fight back and she she takes on the role in 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 traveling um, and in trying to raise awareness and really build up a resistance effort. Um, she is able to really demand a lot of other people when it comes to the resist the solidarity work. When it comes to producing this bulletin um, that she produces um, reports um, campaigns at the United Nations, I think she uses her position as role as you know, as heir apparent to be able to really get a lot done. And I think we think of solidarity sometimes in terms of something that happened automatically, but it wouldn't have happened without the sheer determination of individuals like Beatrice. But it it does weigh on her and, you know, letters and also um, interviews that I did pointed to the fact that at least towards the end of her life, she is she, she finds it difficult to be um, Allende's heir, Salvador Allende's heir all the time. She, she wants a break from it sometimes. She doesn't always want to be Allende's daughter. And she says this to a, a, a friend of hers. And the way he read it was she wanted 
to be able to start building a normal life for her family in Cuba. She didn't want to have um, the attention from the Cuban revolutionary state. She, she wanted to be a bit incognito. She didn't want people to recognize her all the time in the street. And so it weighs increasingly heavily on her, not that she would ever have kind of, and she didn't ever feel she wanted to or could kind of betray her father's legacy, but just that I think she, she wanted some time out of the spotlight by the end of her life. A lot of what you were just saying about the pressures that she was under uh, in life in exile doesn't make it very difficult to understand or to guess some of the reasons that led her to, to suicide. But from a historian's perspective, and it must be a very difficult topic to research, what kind of uh, information did you find around that decision? Yeah, it's very hard um, to write about someone's suicide. I know she wrote a, a suicide note and she actually wrote it to Fidel Castro and it's still in the possession somewhere of the Cuban government, uh, Cuban state. I don't know exactly who has it. Um, and I didn't actually, you know, spend a lot of time trying to find that note because I, I wasn't necessarily sure that it would provide me with all the answers for her decision. Those who have read it, and there are some who have read it, say it's very confused, it's very angry, it's, it, it's desperate. But, you know, talking to many of those who knew her before her death and reading her correspondence, there were a number of factors that led to her taking the decision to kill herself. The main one was what was happening in Chile. By 1977, the, the situation in Chile is very bleak insofar as the dictatorship has consolidated its position. Uh, it's, it's repressed all parts, political parties of the left. Um, many of her friends have been killed or they're in exile. There's very little hope in 1977 of a kind of ground swell movement of resistance that you have in the 1980s that take place in Chile. And she is very disillusioned by what the solidarity campaign has been able to achieve, by what exiles have been able to achieve from afar. So she's, she's very disillusioned um, and depressed about what's happening back home. Her own marriage and her own personal life has also kind of come undone in that her, her Cuban husband leaves. I mean, her letters say it was an amicable break, but their marriage is really impacted by the experience of exile and what happened in Chile. Um, all Beatrice's travels, his his life, her life and her dead, you know, hours and hours that she spends on the committee work mean that he is, means that he is often at home caring for the children. And this is not something that he wants to do, nor in kind of patriarchal Chile, Cuba at the time that is expected. And he resents that role. He believes she should be at home to take care of her children more. And there are also indications that she was looking for kind of an alternative of a way out of kind of doing something other than solidarity work that would give her kind of purpose. She tried to return to medicine just before her death, but because she hadn't practiced for so long, the Cubans told her she would have to go through kind of an internship program again. And she was very disheartened by that. She also thought about studying kind of Marxism, going to kind of study kind of political theory. But this is not something that had ever really interested her before. So she was looking for some kind of uh, way out and and can't find it. And, and, and she wants to go back to Chile, as I, I mentioned before. When it comes to her personal life, I think she struggles as, as well as in terms of her commitment to being a mother and her feeling that she's not 
adequately able to be a, the mother that she sh should be. And in some of her conversations before sh her death, she she asks a lot um, of other women, you know, how do you do it? How do you how do you how can you be a revolutionary and a mother at the same time? How are you able to combine these different facets of your life? And she asks a woman to take her children on and, and to look after them and to provide a loving kind of caring home for them in ways that she doesn't feel that she is able to do. So there were there are a lot of factors. She did also seek um, medical help and, and kind of psychological help for what she self-diagnosed as, as depression, but it didn't work for her or she didn't feel it was working for her. So yeah, it's a kind of tragic kind of combination of factors that leads to her death. And again, from a historian's perspective, how did your experience researching and writing a biography more generally? It was, I mean, it was an incredible journey. Firstly, it was a, a journey that began out of curiosity and interest about a young woman who had been really central to kind of her father's administration, who was always in the background of conversations that I'd had about relations between Chile and Cuba. And I wanted to know, you know, how did such a young woman, you know, end up in such an important position? I was really drawn to her because of who I was at that time as a young woman. I'm not so much now, but <laughs> um, I was really excited to learn more about what she had done. And, and I say it was a voyage of discovery because there are things as I learned more and more about her life and also about her juggling um, the demands of motherhood and work, for example, that were things that were happening in my own life. So I, you know, I, there were moments where I, I empathized. I, I thought a lot about kind of those very difficult decisions she had to make. One of the things that, that happened with this book was that it started off as being something driven by curiosity about Beatrice, but the book became much more than a book about her. It's, it's not a book just about one individual life, but it's, It uses her life to tell the broader story of um, a revolutionary moment in Chile and the processes, economic, political, so social, that occurred in Chile and in Latin America during this time. And so interestingly, and, and what I, one of the wonderful things about biography is that following her life led me to have to read up and research a whole host of things that I hadn't been Um, expecting to, whether it be medical training in Chile, in southern Chile in the early 1960s, or whether it was life in exile life in, in Cuba and what it meant to be an, an exile in, in Cuba. I, I went on different journeys with her and um, it was almost like there was a spotlight over her light. I kind of followed history following that spotlight, but the spotlight was rather big. So it, it, it led me to look at a number of different other um aspects of her life as a way of conclusion and as you were just saying that this was a, a micro history or at the individual level of many other themes so how are you hoping others will use uh, this book beyond those who might be interested in Beatrice I'm hoping that anybody who's interested in uh, the long 1960s in Latin America will will look at it and will will learn from it this is this is about this moment in Chile's past. And one of the things I try to do is also to put the 1970s, which has been researched in, in a lot more detail into a broader context of the 1960s and the transformative events that were taking place. It's a chronologically um, structured book. So um, historians can use it by going in and, and looking at the specific chapters on the parts of the chronology that they're interested in, be it the post 73 moment or the 1960s. But I really, one of the things I'm trying to do is explain how change and continuity occur. So I hope they would read the book as a whole. 
The other way I hope historians will, will, will use it is to think and maybe rethink the Cold War um, and the way in which we examine it. And biography allows us to think about the relationship between the private and the political, between the private and the public, um, and that it's a very dynamic and interdependent relationship that occurs in which revolutionary politics affects individuals and humans at, at kind of a very personal level. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is show the human dimensions of the Cold War and the human dimensions of revolution. So I'm hoping readers will learn or ask kind of questions, more questions about that um, going forward. I also hope, and finally, I think I hope, I hope this is an inspiration to learn more about the role women played um, in um, the Cold War, in Chilean politics, in revolutionary movements more generally. Beatriz wasn't necessarily representative of all women, but um, she does begin to kind of raise questions about the particular gendered roles that women had within revolutionary organizations. And also the, the very important significance of the roles that they did play. So I hope I hope those are some of the things that readers will take away from the book.